Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much to, for coming to this, the latest in the European Institute here at LSE's series, Perspectives on Europe. I'm Damien Chalmers, Head of the European Institute here at the London School of Economics. Uh, today, delighted to welcome, particularly in the lead-up to the Copenhagen Summit, from Minister Jens Stoltenberg, who will be talking on reconciling energy <coughs> and the environment, the Norwegian perspective. I can think of no one better to talk about this, not simply because he's Norwegian, but also because of his long political experience. Prime Minister Stoltenberg has been in government more or less on and off for 15 years now. He's, been, he's in his second stint as Prime Minister of Norway. But what gives him, I think, a particular insight into the question of energy and environment and the vexed question of what we do at Copenhagen is he has also been minister for the three important portfolios, economics, industry, and environment. These are the portfolios that really have to address the nub of the question. He will be talking for about half an hour, and then we'll have half an hour for questions. I hope you will join with me in wel welcoming him warmly to the stage. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, I would like you to tell you how privileged and uh, grateful I am to be able to speak to you. And uh, there are many reasons why I'm very glad to be here. First of all, because LSE is such a distinguished and a recognized academic institution, but also because for many, many years I dreamed about becoming a student at LSE. Uh, and I never managed. Uh, so. Uh, it is even uh, what I say, better to be uh, here giving a lecture to the students. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons why I never managed to become a student at the LSE, even if I wanted it very much when I was a student back in Norway, was that I spent too much time in politics. Uh, I was never able really to leave Norway, and therefore I became a, a politician instead of a, an academic. But uh, at some stage in my life, actually for two years, I left politics and I started to, uh, uh, to work in the Central Bureau of Statistics back in Norway, uh, working with energy and environment. And, uh, and uh, at least during those two years, I was really convinced that I never would go back to politics, but I would uh, devote my life to some real uh, stuff, some uh, academic uh, 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 work, but then I was uh, hijacked by back to politics in 1990 when I became state secretary in the Ministry for Environment. And since then, I had I have been in politics just for a short time. Uh, and the plan is to go back to uh, the academic life some time later on. <laughs> and then perhaps I will try to become a student at LSE again. <laughs> uh, my subject is. Uh, Reconciling energy and environment, <laughs> the, the Norwegian experience. Uh, and uh, and I, will, I, I will try to speak about that for about 30 minutes. Then there are many issues I will not be able to address. And, uh, and you should just feel free afterwards both to ask me about energy and environment, but also to ask me about, about other issues which I uh, don't mention because uh, I think it's important that I leave some time for questions afterwards. Um, energy and environment. 
how to reconcile uh, the need for more energy with the need for uh, uh, a better uh, environment is a key issue. And I will address it first from some kind of global perspective, and then I will say some words about the Norwegian approach and the Norwegian uh, 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 perspective when it comes to energy and environment. First, some words about the global uh, approach or the global perspective uh, concerning energy and environment. And the starting point is that the world is facing two main challenges. One is to fight poverty. The other main challenge is to reduce uh, emissions of greenhouse gases. Poverty and global warming is the two main challenges uh, the, 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 the humankind or the world is facing today. And uh, the problem is that we have to solve both of them. We cannot solve the other, one of them, without solving the other. So the great challenge is how to do both. Both fight uh, poverty and at the same time fight global warming. And the challenge is big and demanding because it is impossible to fight poverty without, reducing, uh, without increasing uh, the use of energy, the consumption and the production of energy uh, in the world. I think that um, uh, uh, we just have to admit that if we are going to reduce the number of people living in poverty, the world is going to increase its uh, consumption of energy. And there are many ways of illustrating that. One way is to look at the progress we have made so far. Because actually during the last decades we have made a lot of progress when it comes to fighting poverty. Hundreds of, hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of poverty in countries like China, India, uh, 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 Indonesia, many other countries. And uh, uh, hardly before, or uh, no, in, we, uh, we have not seen before so many people gone from living in extreme poverty to live in some kind of dignity, uh, at least with some, uh, some basic standard of living. That's the good news, that's the uh, uh, good development. The, the other side of the coin is that during the same period, the energy consumption in countries like China, India, Brazil, uh, and others uh, uh, have increased very much. And, uh, and uh, the reason why countries like China and India has been able to lift so many people out of poverty is that they have been able to promote very strong economic growth and thereby increase their energy consumption. So at the same time as they have uh, lifted people out of poverty, they have also increased uh, emissions of greenhouse gases very much. And that's also the reason why we now see that uh, the global or the emissions of greenhouse gases contributing to global warming is now bigger steaming from developing countries than uh, coming from developed countries. And almost all the increased, or, or almost all the expected increase in emissions of global uh, greenhouse gases in the years to come is expected to come in uh, developing countries. So there is a very close link between uh, the work to promote economic growth, to uh, help people out of poverty, and a very strong uh, increase in the use of energy and, uh, and the connected uh, increase in emissions of greenhouse gases. That is, uh, in a way, the global uh, uh, challenge, and that is the background for what we are 
facing on the global scene. It, it is in a way illustrated or underlined by a very uh, uh, important fact. And that is that we have announced in Norway, in many other countries, that we support uh, the, the, the aim of the UN panel on, uh, on, on climate change, that we should uh, avoid uh, uh, global warming more than two degrees Celsius. To avoid more than two degrees global warming, we have to reduce global emissions of greenhouse gases by 50% by 2050. So we have to reduce emissions from 1990 to 2050 by 50% to avoid more than two degrees uh, increase in global temp temp temperature. At the same time, global population is expected to increase with around 50%. So global population will increase from around 6 billion in 1990 to around 9 billion in uh, 2050. So 50% more people is going to emit 50% less uh, uh, total global greenhouse gases if we are going to avoid uh, uh, more than 2 degrees of uh, global warming. And that is an enormous task, especially because the people living in 2050 are going to have a better living standard than most of the people living today. So my first message to you is that the, the question is not whether to choose economic development or uh, fighting uh, global warming. The question is how do we both uh, promote economic development, alleviate poverty, and at the same time reduce emissions of greenhouse gases. And, uh, and that's possible, but it is very demanding, and it will require the best of all of us if we are able to combine uh, the need for more energy uh, with the need for reduced emissions. And the reason why I'm so very clear on this is that there is no way that we can tell people living in India or China or other developing countries that they shall not have economic growth. And they have a lot of coal in countries like India. And they are going to dig it up and produce electricity because there are so many people who don't have access to, for instance, uh, electricity. So our big challenge is how to do both. And then... I will turn to Norway's uh, responsibility, Norway's contribution to solve this double challenge of promoting economic growth and thereby increasing energy use and at the same time reducing uh, emissions of greenhouse gases. And Norway has a special responsibility, partly because Norway is a major oil and gas producer. We have produced oil and gas since the 1970s. Uh, we are among the major exporters of oil and gas. Uh, we are the, um, the um, uh, fifth largest oil exporter of the world. And Norway is the third largest gas exporter of the world. And uh, the reason why we are such a big exporter is not because we produce so much, but we are so few people, so we consume so little. So almost everything we produce, we uh, export. So we are ranked much lower when it comes to production. But when it comes to uh, exports, we are high on the international uh, rankings. And, um, and being the fifth largest oil exporter and the third largest gas exporter 
gives us, of course, a special responsibility when it comes to uh, 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 facing or, or, or addressing the energy dilemma of the world. Uh, it makes us also an important contributor to the supply of energy, both to European markets and to global markets. And as I said to you, the world need, needs more energy, and Norway is going to provide some of the supply of energy the world needs. But of course, energy is also important for the Norwegian economy. Uh, oil and gas, the petroleum sector, uh, accounts for about one uh, quarter, 25% of our total GDP. So about 25% uh, 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 of total production in Norway is connected to oil and gas, or is oil and gas uh, production. And uh, uh, around one-third of total state revenues is uh, taxes, uh, all the kinds of revenues from the oil and gas sector. So the oil and gas sector, the petroleum sector, is important for Norway, uh, uh, but it is also important for the world, for Europe, because we supply such a big amount of uh, uh, energy supply to Europe and the rest of the world. Um, then, being such a big oil and gas producer, how do we then try to reconcile our uh, role as a major oil and gas producer uh, with our aim of being in the forefront when it comes to fighting uh, climate change? Because we have to admit that it is a, 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 at least a dilemma being a big producer and a big exporter of hydrocarbons and at the same time being in favor of reducing the emissions connected to the burning of hydrocarbons. Uh, it is a dilemma, uh, but I believe that Norway has a very strong policy when it comes to trying to solve that dilemma. And I will point on some of the issues or some of the strategies we are following to try to solve that dilemma being a major oil and gas producer at the same time being in the forefront when it comes to fighting global warming. And I will mention them, some of them. One is that you have to remember, or the first thing is that you have to remember that uh, we are now uh, producing more natural gas than we are producing oil. And the oil production of Norway has actually peaked, so it's on its way down. What is increasing in Norway is uh, gas production. And we uh, export uh, around one, uh, 100 billion cubic meters of gas each year. That makes us to the second largest gas exporter to Europe. Uh, we, uh, we export, uh, or we, we provide around 30% of gas consumption in countries like Germany and France. Uh, and we provide around, around 70, or close to 70% of uh, gas imports to UK. So we are the biggest, by far, uh, gas exporter to the UK. And we provide them an increasing share of UK gas uh, uh, consumption. And as you know, or many of you know, gas has been a key to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases in many European countries. Germany, Belgium, uh, UK has actually reduced their own emissions of CO2 by uh, 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 going from coal to gas, and, uh, and Norway has provided a lot of that gas, which has been uh, uh, important to reductions of uh, CO2 emissions in many European countries. So one, one part of our strategy is that gas uh, is important when it comes to reducing emissions in many European countries and thereby it is part of uh, our strategy to reduce, reduce global emissions of greenhouse gases. 
The other part of our strategy is that our oil and gas sector shall be the cleanest, the greenest oil and gas sector in the world. That's our ambition. And we are trying to pursue or to follow that ambition by uh, introducing very strict environmental standards to our oil and gas sector. When I was State Secretary in the Ministry for Environment back in 1990, we introduced, uh, as the first country in the world, CO2 taxes. And uh, I remember the oil companies told us that it, it was impossible. It was too much, too expensive. But we, in a way, we introduced the taxes and they remained because they were not able to take the oil and gas uh, uh, fields away from Norway. They are there and they, uh, what should I say, they earn money even after uh, they pay the CO2 taxes. We introduced the CO2 taxes back in 1990 and, uh, and now also the Norwegian oil and gas sector is fully part of the European um, uh, cap and trade uh, system for emission trading. And uh, that means that the oil and Norwegian oil and gas sector has a quite high price on emissions and therefore they have developed a lot of technology reducing CO2 emissions connected to oil and gas production. And actually I think Norway is the only country in the world where the oil and gas sector was awarded zero, I repeat, zero free emissions uh, allowances as part of their emission trading scheme. So each kilo Norwegian oil and gas or companies at the Norwegian continental shelf emit of CO2, they have to buy, they have to pay for it. And therefore it's a big uh, economic incentive for them to reduce their emissions because they have to pay for each kilo they emit, uh, buying emission permits in the European uh, 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 cap and trade uh, uh, scheme. In addition to buying quotas in the European uh, cap and trade system, they pay taxes in addition. So that's what you say, a very Norwegian approach. Uh, 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 and it works well. Uh, and it makes it very profitable to reduce emissions and therefore we have per produced unit of gas or oil, we have uh, low uh, uh, emissions because we have this very high uh, price, uh, carbon uh, price uh, and then addition taxes uh, promoting the development of clean uh, technology at the Norwegian continental shelf. The third uh, strategy is to develop renewable energy. Uh, we have a lot of hydropower in Norway. We are trying to develop uh, wind and, and, and other kinds of uh, renewables. Uh, almost 100% of our power production is based on renewables. I think we are among the very few countries in the world, I think together with Iceland, where actually literally close to 100% of power production is based on renewables because we have, we have the hydropower and we try to develop uh, more renewables in Norway, partly by ma market mechanisms and partly by uh, um, uh, government uh, subsidies. Then uh, the big uh, and, uh, uh, and important issue, uh, which is really now the main focus of the Norwegian government, is how to develop carbon capture and storage technology. And, uh, and, and uh, uh, according to the uh, uh, UN uh, climate panel, I think that if we succeed together with other countries, like countries uh, like the UK, to develop successfully carbon capture and storage technology, that will be the key to really uh, uh, big global reductions in CO2 emissions. Because we have, uh, and, and the whole idea is to take the carbon connected to burning of fossil fuels, oil, gas, coal, 
and then to capture the CO2 steaming from uh, the power plants or from the refineries or from big industrial sites, and then to capture the CO2 and then pump it back into the ground. And, and, and someone tells me that that's not, not, not possible. But then I have to remind them that we have already done it in Norway and also in some other countries. In Norway, for 11 years, we have captured CO2 from a big gas field called Schleipner. One, bil one million ton uh, has been captured e each year uh, and then re-injected into the continental shelf. And we do it now on a new gas field called Snøvit up in the north, where we also capture CO2 and re-inject it into the continental shelf. We know that each week they build a new coal-fired plant, plant in, in, uh, in China. And when they have installed the coal-fired plant uh, uh, power station, it will stay there for decades. Uh, and it will emit a lot of CO2. So if we are going to reduce emissions from power plants, from big industrial sites, then we have in one way or another to develop this technology which can make it clean. And carbon capture and storage is uh, the technology. We know that the technology is there because we have already applied it at some of our oil and gas fields. But the problem is that it's too expensive. So to make it commercial, to make it uh, uh, into a technology which can be uh, applied uh, on uh, I say, a big scale, we have to develop and improve the technology. And that's what we are trying to do at a big uh, 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 test center, which is developed at the west coast of Norway at a place called Mongsta. It's a very famous place in Norway. Uh, and uh, it has been expensive before. Uh, yeah. uh, and, uh, uh, but at least at that test center, we are now uh, in the process of constructing uh, a 5 billion Norwegian kroner. Uh, what's that? Uh, five, uh, yeah, 500 million, uh, uh, million uh, British pounds uh, test uh, center uh, to, to develop uh, carbon capture and storage technology because we believe that that's so important if we're going to achieve what we're speaking about. Uh, increasing the uh, uh, supply of energy to the world, but at the same time decreasing uh, the emissions of greenhouse gases. We work together with the British government, and I actually had the honor to uh, work together with Gordon Brown for many years on trying to develop a cooperation between UK and Norway when it comes to uh, the development of carbon capture technology. And we also have something called the North Sea Basin Initiative, where we try to look into where, where can we store CO2 uh, uh, in, the, in, in the North Sea continental shelf. These are the main strategies we are following to try to develop a clean energy supply in Norway and also then to uh, work together with the rest of the world to try to implement uh, to, to, uh, to, uh, uh, these technologies in other parts of the world to other energy uh, sectors of the world. But I will mention one more uh, 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 issue uh, con very closely connected, connected to this, and that is the efforts Norway is doing to try to save the rainforest. Because in addition to carbon capture, uh, stopping the deforestation or the forest degradation is the two most important uh, uh, means to reduce uh, global emissions of CO2. 
And, uh, and we know that deforestation uh, accounts for around 20% of total global greenhouse gas emissions. And there is no way we can achieve big enough reductions without stopping deforestations in countries like Brazil, uh, Indonesia, uh, and other countries. And we have seen that it is possible to make progress. In Brazil, they have achieved enormous uh, progress. The deforestation has been very much reduced for many reasons. But one reason is that countries like Norway uh, cooperate with the government of Brazil. We give some financial support uh, to try to uh, uh, save the rainforest and thereby also reduce uh, the uh, emissions of greenhouse gases. And we also work together with the UK government on these issues uh, on something called the Congo Basin Initiative. We also try to finance support uh, the stop uh, or to avoid deforestation in, in uh, Africa. So uh, these are among the main uh, measures Norway are undertaking and the strategies we are following to try to be able to both provide the world with energy but at the same time be able to reduce global emissions. But none of these strategies, none of these efforts will have any a uh, real effect unless we reach a global agreement on reducing, uh, uh, re reducing uh, emissions of greenhouse gases. And therefore, what is going to happen in Copenhagen later on in December this year is so important. And as many other countries, many other people of the world, we hoped for and very long believed in that in Copenhagen in December, the world should be able to agree on the legally binding uh, treaty uh, uh, concerning uh, or, or, uh, or addressing how to reduce uh, uh, greenhouse gases in the world. I think that we have to admit now that we, the world will not reach such an agreement in Copenhagen. In Copenhagen we will not be able uh, uh, to reach a legally binding agreement. What we then work for and, uh, and strive for is that in uh, Copenhagen in December, the world should be able to reach what we call a politically binding agreement. So even if it's not a legally ratifiable agreement, it should be a very strong political decision, at least addressing some of the overarching goals, avoiding more than two degrees uh, increase in global temperature, uh, agreeing globally on a reduction equal to 50% uh, by 2050, and agreeing on at least some uh, uh, intermediate uh, uh, aims when it comes to uh, emission uh, reductions by 2020. The, the further we can go, the better. And Norway will push for uh, 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 commitments, uh, figures, and very strong commitments. How far we can reach to reach a global consensus, I don't know, but Norway will at least do its part. But I think that the main reason why we have not been able to come further and the main reason why we have problems with really reaching the agreement in Copenhagen we would like to see is that there is still not enough confidence between the rich world and the developing world. Because developing countries are not willing to undertake measures reducing their own emissions uh, as long as the rich world is not willing to pay. Because the developing world is telling us that you have now, the rich world, polluted the atmosphere for 200 years or even more. 
And now when, when in the way the, the basket is full, you tell us to stop our emissions. The developing world will not accept that. So if they are going to reduce their emissions, uh, the rich world has to both pay for mitigation in their own country, but also participate uh, financing uh, mitigation uh, reductions in the developing world. And therefore, the key issue in Copenhagen is how can we establish financial mechanisms, uh, uh, systems where rich countries like Norway, like the European Union, finance uh, mitigation uh, technologies in the developing world so they can reduce their emissions. Uh, we have some proposals, uh, for instance, using the carbon trade market, uh, auctioning out some of the allowances, uh, earmarking some of the uh, money from, uh, from emission trading into going into developing countries, uh, because uh, that's the way we can uh, achieve economic development in the developing world, and at the same time making the development in the developing world cleaner and greener than we have seen in the rich world so far. So then I'm back again to my starting point. The idea is not to choose between either energy or environment. The idea and the task is to combine both the need for energy with the need for a cleaner environment. And the way to achieve that is that the rich world has to both take responsibility for its own emission, but in addition, it has to finance at least some of the mitigation, some of the technology uh, developments which has to take place in the developing world so they can achieve both increase in their energy consumption, which is a precondition for alleviating poverty and at the same time reduce their emissions. Thank you so much for listening to me. Thank you very much for such a wide-ranging, multifaceted uh, speech. We have some time for questions. I'll take them in groups of three. There should be roving mics around the place. The gentleman right at the front here. Hello, I'm Martin, and I was um, wondering about uh, Norway has a lot of financial resources to develop carbon capture technologies, but you say that Norway doesn't really need them because you're already at a quite low carbon uh, emissions per energy produced. So the technology is actually needed in China. I was wondering how the uh, intellectual property of these carbon capture technologies is distributed and how it relates to how you will um, apply them in, for example, China. Okay, other questions? Gen gentleman down here. Uh, my name is uh, Alex, I'm a second year IR and history student. Um, I was wondering, you, you mentioned that you had a uh, close relationship with uh, the United Kingdom and especially with um, Gordon Brown in combating uh, climate change as well as deforestation. Uh, how do you think the upcoming British election is going to change that relationship, if at all? Um, and uh, yeah, given that relationship, how do you think that's going to, going to change? Thank you. And finally, the lady right at the very back with the turquoise scarf. Hello, Anne. Um, I have a question concerning carbon stockage as well. Uh, some experts think that it is a quite risky technique. Um, I would like to know how Norway 
things about this and how you address the risks linked to carbon stockage. Thanks. Right, three questions, two on carbon capture and storage, if I understand them. One related to the risks, the other to the distribution of technology, and the third on something a little different, British-Norwegian uh, elections pre and post the British elections. Thank you. Uh, first of all, uh, first a question from Martin about uh, about uh, what we do to uh, what you to promote uh, carbon capture technologies in countries like China. Uh, first, I have to underline that my message is that we need the carbon capture technology also in Norway, because one of the uh, I mean we have we have in a way two of our main sources of emissions in Norway is the petroleum industry, uh, producing oil and gas, especially gas, uh, causes a lot of. CO2 emissions in Norway, and, and if we're able to reduce uh, those emissions, we have to capture and store that uh, CO2 from, from gas, uh, oil and gas production in Norway. So we need the technology in Norway, but we need, it, we need it even more in countries like China, India, and many other countries. Because in Norway, we have, uh, uh, we have the gas, and, uh, and, uh, and we, have, uh, we have emissions connected to gas. But, uh, but of course, the, 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 the environmental benefits of implementing carbon capture is much bigger when you apply it for, uh, on coal fire power stations. And coal fire power stations is now being built all over the world. Actually, I saw the, the energy report from the International Energy Agency. They told us that this year or last year or now, approximately now, is the first time where coal is now exceeding oil. Uh, as, a, as a source of, uh, of uh, energy again. So, uh, so, uh, so coal is really going up, and, uh, and as I said, as when, when a coal-fired power station is constructed or built, it will be there for decades. So uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, potential of reductions are much bigger connected to coal, and therefore the potential is, is bigger in countries like China than in Norway because we don't have any coal-fired power stations and we never have. Uh, what we do to promote it in China is in a way two things. We have uh, established a cooperation with China when it comes to developing technology. They have their own uh, programs trying to develop carbon capture and storage. And again, the, te the technology is there, but uh, so uh, uh, up to now it has been too expensive. Uh, uh, but second, we believe that we should uh, uh, use the mechanisms in the Kyoto Agreement, something called uh, called the Clean Development Mechanism, which is a mechanism where rich countries like Norway finance uh, mitigation uh, in countries like China, and uh, and thereby in a way finance emission allowances or quotas, and uh, and we have some projects in China, but also many other countries where we try to to promote uh, carbon capture and storage. We believe that we should uh, uh, make a much better agreement in Copenhagen or later on where we can include carbon capture in this mechanism, transferring, uh, tan transferring uh, financial resources from rich countries to developing countries. Uh, then when it comes to uh, the cooperation with Britain, we have an excellent cooperation with Britain, with Britain as I said, and, and for many reasons, but one reason is that Gordon Brown and I, we have discussed this for, since we both were Minister of Finance. Uh, and he was very engaged in climate change. And when he was Minister of Finance, I was Minister of Finance, and we worked together on these issues for, uh, uh, together for many years. Um, and Gordon Brown has really been a very strong leader on these issues uh, because uh, he has been very engaged and he has seen the potential 
when it comes to, for instance, carbon capture, and also the, uh, the potential of solving one of the problems. Where do we store all the carbon? And the North Sea Basin, the continental shelf, is a potential for, or is a place where we potentially can store a lot of carbon capture, and, or carbon, and therefore we are looking into the geological structures, we are looking into the transport systems and so on for uh, re-injecting the, the CO2 into the uh, uh, North Sea continental shelf. I mean, I'm a social democrat. I'm a, I'm a labor politician. So, of course, uh, I, and I participated at the labor, labor Party National Congress some weeks ago. So, uh, I mean, I will always be supporting labor politicians uh, in the different European countries when they stand for election. But Norway is also a country which, of course, cooperates excellent with uh, uh, whoever uh, uh, is elected as a prime minister in countries like, like UK. And we have a long tradition of that in Europe, that we are uh, members of different political families, but we are, are at the same time, of course, able and very good at uh, cooperating with uh, politicians from different uh, families when they are in, in position in different countries. And I'm sure that will be the case also in the UK. Uh, after the elections. Then the risk of the technology. Uh, I would say that, of course, there's always a risk. But at least the experience from the Norwegian uh, continental shelf is that we have been storing uh, CO2 there for uh, more than 10 years without any leakage. And it's very closely monitored. So uh, we have experience uh, telling us that this is possible. Second, the risk of not developing this technology is much bigger. Because the, if we are not able to develop carbon capture and storage te te technology, it's for sure that emissions will continue to increase. Because there is no other realistic alternative way to solve the big problem of all the coal-fired power stations around the world, except of uh, carbon capture and storage technology. So the risk of not doing it is much bigger than the risk of uh, re-injecting uh, uh, CO2 into the continental shelf. And, and just at the end, uh, I mean, what we are doing is actually to take the carbon back into the reservoir where it was before we took it up. And it stayed there for some millions of years. And then I guess it can stay there for some more years. <laughs> okay, some more questions. The lady, lady at the top there, yes, just... Hi. Um, since you're speaking uh, or invited by the European Institute, um, when will Norway ever join the EU? <laughs> and, and I dare you, since you're a politician, I know it's hard, uh, is it possible for you to say yes or no? And you can think in a time frame of 10 to 15 years. Thank you. There's a gentleman down here that was... Mr. Stoltenberg, I have a political but bold proposal for you. Now, Norway has a significant uh, wealth stemming from this, this oil excavation, and you could perhaps use it to invest in green technologies. I think it would fight the, the twin goals of reducing poverty and green ice emissions, and perhaps be only the, realistic the only realistic future. So is that something that you, although a political question, is it something that you could consider? And finally, the gentleman at the very back on the top. Yeah, with his hand, hand up. You, sir.
Recently, the Lord's turn of uh, UK advised us to stop eating meat to save the environment. Do, do, do Could you, you speak up a bit, please? Recently, the Lord's turn of UK advises to stop eat, eating meat to save the environment. Do, do you think the, we have to have such drastic measures? Is that the order of the day, considering the amount of energy that goes into production of one kg of meat? Okay, if I understood the three questions, starting backwards is whether we should become vegetarians to save the environment. Um, whether Norway should uh, invest more in green technologies, and thirdly, when, when or if you think Norway should join the EU? Yeah. Uh, I can start with the last uh, question, and, uh, and uh, I mean, if people should free to become vegetarians, but uh, the Norwegian government will not uh, impose a law. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so uh, what should I say? Even the Norwegian Labour Party understands there's some limits to what politicians shall, uh, <laughs> shall regulate. Um, but to be a bit more serious is that, of course, if we make it more expensive to pollute, and we should do that, and we should impose a price on carbon, uh, then, of course, all kind of production, and also and meat production, which causes uh, or requires a lot of energy and causes a lot of uh, emissions, will be more expensive. So the whole idea is to use the market mechanism to increase the price on products which are uh, carbon intensive. And thereby, I mean, I don't know too much about meat production, but, but if meat production is very carbon intensive to, to compare to, to the production of vegetables, of course, then you have a change in relative prices. And that might pro promote a more healthy uh, eating pattern uh, in Norway and in UK. But that's not by regulations. It is, it, it is through the use of the price mechanisms, uh, pricing carbon. That is actually also part of the answer to the second question. That, of course, Norway, as many other countries, should, and we are already, as many other countries, promoting uh, the, in a, uh, the, the development of green technologies. And I believe very much in technology. Because when I, when I became a politician back in the 1970s, we had a lot of big environmental problems, like, uh, like the emissions of, uh, of uh, or acid rain, sulfur. Uh, heavy metals from, uh, from industries and so on. Uh, almost all these traditional, classical environmental problems has been solved. And not because we have uh, 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 stopped producing things or, 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 or stopped using cars, but because we have developed clean cars, uh, catalytic uh, 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 cleaning, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, for instance, gasoline without lead. So, uh, and, and the ozone layer, which was a big problem some years ago, we have been able to reduce the emissions of those gases reducing the, or, or destroying the ozone layer by almost 100%. Uh, and, and always uh, has technology been the answer. Uh, so yes, I believe very much in technology. Yes, we should promote uh, the development of new technologies. And we should do it by using two means. One is government support uh, allocation of money, uh, research, and so on, and we do that in Norway, and uh, and it is important. But I think even more important is again to introduce a price on carbon, by emission trading, by cap and trade, by CO2 taxes. We shall make it extremely expensive to pollute, and uh, and therefore it will be extremely profitable to reduce pollution. 
And uh, being a social democrat, I believe strongly in the market, as long as we manage the market. And, uh, and the market is, a, is a, what I say, a bad master, but a very excellent servant. So if you just introduce high prices on CO2, uh, you know, private capitalists who are not, uh, 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 I say, con who are not concerned at all about uh, uh, climate change, they will be very eager to develop green technologies because they can become rich uh, on green technologies. And I believe that the way out of this problem is in a way to make it profitable for private companies to become green. green. And, uh, and, and, and that's the reason why I believe so much in carbon trading, uh, because then it will make it profitable for private companies to develop uh, green technologies, and they will do it much better than governments. So what we should do is just to create the framework, uh, introduce price on carbon, and then uh, devote the rest of our time to solve uh, other issues, and then leave it to the market to solve the, uh, 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 I mean, at least much of the problem of reducing uh, uh, CO2 emissions. And then Norway joining the European Union. <laughs> That's a very good question. Uh, uh, but I have to, to tell you that when I was uh, 14 years old, I went with my father on, the, uh, on a big election. Or he was uh, uh, campaigning for Norwegian membership in the European Union in 1973. And I followed my father, and I was very impressed by all, the, all his speeches. And I actually believe that the people of Norway would vote yes. Uh, but it was a big majority, or that, not a big, but it was a majority uh, uh, in favor of no, so we stayed outside in 1973. And then we had a new referendum in 1994. And then I was campaigning, even harder, at least as hard as he did, and we lost uh, also then. And Norway, uh, you have to remember, or I guess you know, that Norway is the <coughs> only country in the world which has been admitted uh, into the European Union, which has negotiated an accession treaty into the European Union and then voted it down, not only once, but twice. <laughs> and uh, so, I, I mean, so I, I am personally a strong uh, supporter of Norwegian membership in the European Union, because I believe that we should be part of the political cooperation within Europe. Uh, but I'm also living in, the, in a democratic uh, society, and the Norwegian people have so far uh, not uh, been uh, in favor, and uh, therefore I'm 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 I'm, to, I'm not able to be honest to answer your question. So I could uh, at least I started by saying that uh, because I don't know when the European Union uh, issue again will be on the agenda. Uh, it is a very uh, I mean it it, it is a very uh, uh, difficult question in Norway simply because. Uh, we had this referendum twice. We have time for a couple more questions. Gentleman there. Yes. Hi, Mr. Prime Minister. Thank you very much for an interesting uh, speech. Um, taxation seems to be a favorite of the Norwegian Labour Party. And I was uh, hoping you could comment some upon the recent discussion in the Norwegian media about uh, biofuel and why you have imposed a tax or proposed to impose a tax on biofuel. Because the way I see it, this both harms the environment in that renewables are not developed, and it harms the private capitalists because they can't uh, participate, they can't uh, develop renewables because it might be taxed in the future. So if you'd be comment upon this, please. And we'll take one more question. The gentleman just there. Just Hello. Hi, good afternoon. 
Um, I'm Wesley. Uh, my question is that, especially for oil producing countries like Norway or like OPEC, um, or like especially for OPEC, like is there is there an agenda? Uh, might there be an agenda where they might not want um, so much reliance on renewable energy, considering that a lot of their state revenue comes from oil and gas? I can unfortunately just take those two questions. The first one on biofuels, the first, where does renewables leave OPEC states, for instance? Uh, the, the, uh, there has been a discussion in Norway about biofuels, and, uh, and uh, I think that the important thing to, to, to say is that we believe in the principle of the polluter pay. And, uh, and uh, the use of uh, transportation or the use of biofuels causes, or the use of fuels causes, causes in a way, two types of, uh, of pollution. One is the emission of uh, carbon dioxide, CO2, and the other is all other kinds of more uh, local uh, pollution uh, connected to transportation, uh, especially from, uh, from uh, lorries and so on. And, uh, and, uh, and when it comes to biofuels, at least many people uh, say that there is uh, little or zero or little uh, emissions of CO2. And therefore we have removed the CO2 tax uh, from biofuels. Someone is saying that that's wrong because there are uh, carbon dioxide emissions connected to biofuels. But anyhow, we have decided to, uh, to impose zero uh, CO2 taxes on biofuels used in Norway. But since you have two kinds of taxes, one CO2 tax and another tax related to the local uh, emissions uh, or pollutions connected to the use of fuels, we are not uh, uh, removing the other kind of, uh, of taxes, uh, partly because it will be a violation of the idea of polluter pace, and partly because it will, uh, 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 I mean, it, it, the cost will be, uh, might be very uh, high, uh, because, uh, because then we will subsidizing uh, the use of biofuels with close to four kroner per liter, which is uh, quite much without being sure about the environmentally impact or consequences of doing uh, so. Uh, then, when it comes to renewables, I understand the question, but you know, I think we have to understand that the need for energy in the world is so big, and the increase in demand for energy is so big, and especially when we see that the population of the world will grow with around 50% from 1990 to 2050, that we will need both coal, oil, gas, and renewables. And so far, we have seen an enormous increase in the yield in the use of fossil fuels. Uh, even if many countries of the world, or governments of the world, are investing in renewables. So Norway believe both in, uh, uh, in, uh, in the need of, uh, or we, we believe both there will be a need for more use of fossil fuels. We promote very much the gas because it's the cleanest of the fossil fuels. But in, a, in addition to that, uh, we need uh, renewables and we invest also in renewables. So there is a need of a lot of different kinds of energy. Prime Minister, you saw from the number of hands that this could go on for a long time, and that's a sort of a tribute to both your speech and the clear, clear and uh, direct answers you gave to the questions. First, before we finish, can I just ha make a housekeeping announcement? People just let the Prime Minister leave the stage and be able to make his way down the aisle before you leave your seats. Secondly, you said you wanted to be a... Uh, 
You'd had a dream at least. I don't know if it's still there to be a student here at LSE. I have to say mine, unfortunately, for my students, is a more narcissistic one of lecturing to the students here. I wish all the lecturers at LSE could lecture in the engaging, interesting, and captivating way you have. You can see how much uh, it's interested us and uh, engaged us. Thank you very much Thank indeed. You.